graduate resident tells a story how she was, uh, after her residency, she was invited to a networking conference for post-residents. These are typically done in nice places where residents can meet other doctors and network and connect for work and future jobs after their residencies. She tells how this uh, conference and networking event was at a very posh hotel. It was a meet and greet, lots of doctors, presentations, all those kind of things. And after lunch, they were dismissed to an area where desserts were all laid out. There was ice cream, cheesecake, all those things. Again, a, cha a chance for mingling of residents and doctors for networking. Well, one of uh, a very prestigious doctor came up to her from a very uh, successful practice and asked her as they were looking at the desserts, so what are your plans now? And she responded to the physician, hazelnut cheesecake. <laughs> she saw then the doctor move from her to a friend and asked the same question, and her friend responded, um, my office is start a practice near to my home. At that point, she said, what was I doing? You know, he was asking me about job stuff. And uh, she realized at this point, um, she was not getting the very nature of the conference was networking, not about hazelnut cheesecake. Lessons in missing the point. Today, we're going to see someone else that misses, misses the point from a revelation that should have been very, very clear. We might chuckle at this resident. We might be perplexed at this character in the Old Testament. But my hope this morning is that we might see that we can easily fall into this trap of missing the point and setting up false gods and also bowing to them due to the influences around us. I hope we might see this morning that we also can fall into this trap of missing the point and setting up false gods and also bowing to them due to the influences around us. So let's look at God's word together, shall we? Daniel chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. Please pay attention as we read God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then... The satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, 
Jesus, all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The word of the Lord. Would you join us? Welcome this fall, this winter. We're going through the book of Daniel, and we have been placed 500 miles away from home, from Jerusalem, who were the readers this time, and they are sent into exile, into Babylon. This kingdom that has come into power in the area, the greatest kingdom in the known world at that point in time. And these people, these Israelites, have been sent into exile into this different worldview, this different place. And we are following along with four teenagers from Israel that have gone to this new place. And we wonder, as we are kind of in their shoes, is the God of Israel real? Is he true? Does his kingdom really matter? And we see, as we follow these teenagers along, should they trust the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Babylon? Which one? And we see, as we've gone through this book, that we see that these teenagers have continued to trust in the Lord. They've changed their diet to show that they trust God and what he says, which is what the Babylonian Empire says, and it's gone well with them. They've shown favor in the court. And then we see that God does not just work with them. He works upon this king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He troubles him with a dream. None of his counselors can answer. But the God of Israel does through one of these teenagers, Daniel. And then Daniel reveals the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, what his dream was, and the interpretation of it. And Daniel communicates to Nebuchadnezzar that this God who revealed this dream is the God of gods, the king of kings, the one that sets up kings and deposes kings. He is the one that is worthy of all worship. Nebuchadnezzar, in hearing that his dream is both revealed to Daniel and the interpretation, he says, man, your God is legit. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. And he honors the one true God. So that's where we've come from. And now we're into a new story and a new scene that we'll look at over the next two weeks. We don't really know how much time has passed. Maybe it was many years. Maybe it was just a few years. Who knows? Maybe it was the next day. We don't know. All we do know is that Daniel is no longer on the scene. Maybe he's off somewhere doing his official duties. But instead we get his three other friends are the center of the story. And we see what happens. Nebuchadnezzar makes an image. And we think from the last story we just heard about how Nebuchadnezzar has said, Yahweh is the God of gods, he's the king of kings, right? That he has gotten the lesson, and he is going to create an image maybe from the dream that he's heard, right? And if you think that he would create an image based on the dream that he had, you would think he would maybe be an image where, you know, it's a gold head and silver body and then bronze and then, and then iron, and maybe a, a stone next to it that is rolling to destroy the image, and then obliterate it, right? That would be a way of actually honoring the image that was given to him. 
careful that if he really honored the image, he would realize the dream said that this image would be destroyed and nothing would be seen anymore of it. Instead, we just see creation, this great mountain, this stone had become. And he would worship God maybe just through God's creation. And he creates an image. And this is what he gets. A 90 foot tall image. 9 feet wide, a golden image, not the other elements that were in the, um, in the dream or even the stone, just gold, right? And the gold really would symbolize the Babylonian kingdom, right? We don't know what the image looks like, it doesn't say. It could have been of Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know, a lot of people depict it that way. It could have just been an obelisk, you know, which is like the Washington Monument we would see today, something of that. We don't know. But we can see he's not really building something true to the dream. Instead, he's making it a full gold in his own image. My dad liked to uh, say this to my brother and my sister and myself. He said this often. It seems like you guys have selective hearing. And selective hearing works like this with kids, right? Like, maybe my dad gave, me, gave us $25 and said, here's $25 for the movie, and make sure you also spend money on getting eggs and come back. And then we come back, right, without the eggs, right? And he says, what happened to getting the eggs? And you're like, oh, I forgot about that. But you didn't forget about going to the movie, did you? Selective hearing, okay? No one here has a selective hearing in their household, do they? Anyone? Just hear what they want to hear and not what they don't want to hear and just perform that act, right? Well, I think that's what Nebuchadnezzar is dealing with. Selective hearing. He hears the part that he wants to hear. The gold part, right? His own kingdom. That's the most important message. That his kingdom will just be the one that's glorified. Rather than seeing that the more important message that was communicated by God to Nebuchadnezzar was that his kingdom will end and that God's kingdom will last forever. Lessons in not getting the point, we see that in this passage. You might have heard a word used over and over again. Set up, set up, set up. Nine times it's used, right? It is in contrast to what Daniel says about Yahweh. He says, Yahweh sets up kings and deposes kings. And now we get Nebuchadnezzar, that what does he do? He sets up. He puts it in motion. He makes it happen. You see, his kingdom is in contrast to God and what God does. And then thirdly, we see through chapter 3, I have made, I have made, I have made. Again, the focus is on what he has done. And 11 times through chapter 3, it says, worship, worship, worship. Worshiping this image. Worshiping Babylon, this kingdom. Worshiping Nebuchadnezzar. See, he just did not get it. Here's a dream. We have 
Often by people that he enslaved, interpreted to him for what God said his benefit, that God will destroy the nations, including this image of gold, and there will be nothing left. And then God's kingdom will be the greatest. From all of this that has been given to King Nebuchadnezzar, he interprets it in this way, building a 90-foot gold tower that he asks people to worship. How does this happen? How does he create this one thing and then he does the exact opposite? Maybe this is not too far from our own experiences. One minute we have spiritual highs. One minute says people say, I trust in Jesus. They sing songs. They do all the things you're supposed to do. Religious experiences, but no true conversion. Jesus talks about this quite often. Right? The parable of the seed planted. We see that some of the seeds, right, fall on rocky ground, right? They hear the word. There's joy, it even says, Jesus says. But tribulation and persecution happens, and they fall away. Jesus also talks about the seed that falls among the thorns. They hear and they care, but then the world comes in. The riches choke up this thing that was growing, and it proves unfruitful. We can hear, we can see experiences, they can be in front of us, we can feel like, yes, you're the God of gods, you're the Lord of lords, but there is no fruit, there is no conversion, and this is what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, what chokes him, chokes him that's moving him on the thorns is the idea of his kingdom has to have a safeguard, an image to protect it, something that has to be elevated. And that continues to reign in his heart when the pressures come on about if Babylon will be number one. About 2,000 years later, from this philosopher echoes Nietzsche's, um, echoes Nebuchadnezzar's thoughts. 19th century philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, secular philosopher. Nietzsche says this, If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? I don't want to give up control. I want to create my own things that are tangible, that are in front of me, that I can worship. The power is so great, instead of worshiping this God that I cannot see, that I want to make what he has created and worship that. And we end up controlling things over and over again, creating our own images, creating our own things, that we can worship that that's tangible in front of us, that's something that we can control and have the world see, or people see that we're productive, or whatever it might be. 
One of my favorite books, uh, next to the Bible, it is probably my favorite book, is a book called The Great Divorce. I quote it often here in the church. I'm sorry, you have to bear with me. I try to read it like once a year. It's so good. It's an allegory by C.S. Lewis. It's not about divorce, per se, about marriage divorce, but it's about the great divorce between heaven and hell. And what happens is Lewis, in this allegory, shows people from hell and heaven meeting in this land and the conversations that these people have with each other. And what's very interesting is these people that come from hell to this place, they see the beauty of what's happened to these people. They see tangibly something they should be able to worship and say God is good, right? But even this right before them, even though they see it tangibly, they still revolt. Lessons in not getting the point and missing the point. One of these stories is about a woman who comes from hell to go talk to her friend, Hilda. And her friend Hilda comes from heaven. And Hilda is friends with, her, um, with this woman's husband from earth. His name is Robert. This woman is talking to Hilda about her husband, Robert. This is what she says. He's not fit to be on his own. Put me in charge of him. He wants philandering. I know him better than you do. No, give him to me, do you hear? Don't consult him. Just tell him to me. I'm his wife, aren't I? I was only beginning. There's lots and lots of things I still want to do with him. I'm so miserable. I must have someone, someone to do things to. Give him back to me. Why should he want everything his own way? It's not good for him. It isn't right. It's not fair. I want Robert. What right do you have to keep him from me? I hate you. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't trusted in God. His way of dealing with his pressures is to consolidate power and control and to have selective hearing and erect a 90-foot gold statue so his kingdom will look good. Control, control, control. Set up, set up, set up. Like the famous quote that John Calvin plays well here, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Instead of worshiping God, we take it back ourselves for things that we can control and shape in our own image, to create our own kingdoms, our perfect house, where all the knickknacks are in the right place, 
Our kids, who we elevate to such levels so it makes us look like a success. Our jobs in the perfect place, making sure no one gets in our way, that we look good in our titles. Our businesses that we create and shape so they look good, so they will never end. And in our attempts of making these idols, we make others around us miserable people as we try to control everything that is around us. Selective hearing. I do not want to hear what God says. I don't want to hear that God says, I have given you all of these things, your home, your children, your job, your body. They will one day fade. I am the one that lasts. But in our selective hearing, all we hear is my things. Mine. Mine. Nebuchadnezzar to confirm his kingdom is the greatest. It's going to make everyone come and worship the greatness of his kingdom. He's going to consolidate his power and people will follow because it will be so tempting, it will be so hard not to. And you will see the escalation of what he makes it so it makes it harder and harder not to follow this Babylonian kingdom. You see the escalation starts in step one. He brings all the leaders of Babylon together to the dedication of this 90-foot image of gold. And really it's kind of a bait and switch, right? He gets them to come, and there's a great irony in this passage, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, that when he gets all the leaders to come, and here they are, in front of this 90-foot gold statue, what does it say they are doing? Standing. (laughs) They're not bowing at it. They're not worshiping it. They're standing. That's a great irony that when they are actually confronted with this, their response is not to bow to it. But then that's where Nebuchadnezzar escalates it, right? What does he say you have to do? It says, you know what you have to do? He says, you must bow to it. When the music plays, you must bow before the image. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. The escalation goes better, and here's the power of music. All the nations all the nations, all high are bowing. It's even a greater pressure to bow to it. And then the escalation becomes even greater. If you do not bow to this image, what will happen? You'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. The pressure is even greater. And then it goes even to another level. But the music does start playing. 
And then all the nations, all the people, bow to this image. See, there's something that these narratives, as we go through Daniel, are doing. These are repeating themes that we see. What kingdom do you believe in? It's not about wailing on the followers of God who are in exile in Babylon. You know, the very word persecute, it means to wear out. It's a 70-year period, right? 70 years is what Daniel covers. In story after story, we see that the Babylonian kingdom is trying to wear them down. Especially as Daniel and his companions move from college to serving in in um, the temple or in the palace to then serving in a greater role in the kingdom. You know, Daniel's super in charge. Think of all the power they've been and what they then have to give up. The pressure is greater and greater. Will they follow the Babylonian kingdom or God's kingdom? a very hard passage to many times uh, illustrate and also apply to our context, to the American context. The reason is because we are liberty-loving Americans. No government, no person is going to tell us what to do, right? There's no authoritarianism with us. They can provide my gun for my cold, dead hands, right? The American way, right? And I know some of you are saying in your mind, oh, you're skeptic. Oh, they're coming. The government's coming. I know what some of you are saying. Even that thought shows your desire for liberty and for freedom, right? No one's going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to bow to anyone. And there's also something else we love to do. We love to point out how other people bow to the pressures around them, right? We love to say, oh, look how you're bowing to this or to that. We never want to admit to anything that we're bowing to ourselves, right? Oh, look at them. They're bowing to the current sexual ethic message, right? Wearing certain pins or flags, you're just bowing to that sexual ethic. Right? That's maybe what we say on the right. Maybe on the left, we say, they say to other people, say, you're just bowing to materialism and wealth. Or maybe if on the right, you're just bowing to the pressure of abortion on demand. Or the left, you're just bowing to the pressures of the idol of firearms. You should see how these things, we just look at what other people are doing rather than looking to ourselves. It's many times hard to see what we are bowing to because everyone in our own group, our own tribe is doing the same thing we are doing. And also, we couldn't imagine living without it because it's just the air that we breathe. Romantic relationships. You have to be in one. It's the end all, be all. To be married, 
for family, to be able to express yourself in love physically to someone else, that is the meaning of life. And I will not let that be taken away. That can be an idol. I have to have this thing, this material thing, this home, this income, this kind of vacation, this kind of toy. Those are idols we can bow to. Caring about our sports or the Packers are idols we can bow to. And many times we don't even realize the Pavlovian response we have to these things. When the music plays, we just go along with it like it's no problem at all. Out, pop, and it went all down. Wow. That's random, is it? Pavlovian response. And then these things crowd our worship of the true God. What are some ways you can tell these things are crowding your worship of the true God? They take it away from worshiping on Sunday morning. Right? Typical pastor thing to say, right? Because he wants you here on Sunday morning. No, God commands us to worship Him on the Sabbath. That is one of the Ten ten Commandments. To worship Him. To set a day apart. To be with Him and His people. To acknowledge that He is the Creator of the universe. He calls us to that. Another way we can see that our worship is crowded by these other things, it consumes your thoughts. It's all you think about. Doing this thing, being in this relationship, advancing in my job, being on vacation, whatever it might be, and we bow down to it. I bow to spend my time and my energy to get this thing. It takes over your finances. It's where you spend your money. It's where your treasure really is. It keeps you from conversations with God. And then you think, my wife will be left behind if I don't have this. I won't be popular. I won't be truly loved. These are the idols and the the voices from false gods that say to you, bow to me. And the music is so loud. And we see other people bowing too. It's so hard. The Babylonian kingdom is so loud. I hope some of you I think some of you, I hope you're not doing this, but I think some of you might push back when I say this stuff. Oh, this is the way you Christians are. You're just getting me 
to not bow to this thing, but then to bow to this other thing, to the rules. You're just trying to control me with religion. That's all this is. You just want my money. You just want my time. That's what religion is. And that's what you call me to here on Sunday morning. Just to hear that I have to bow to your stuff. I want to challenge that for a second. Please hear me. I want to argue that the way that God has established his kingdom is a lot different to the way that Nebuchadnezzar establishes his. God's kingdom is not out of force, but out of attractive love. See, in Nebuchadnezzar, he erects a monument to himself. He forces others to bow down to it. And if they do not bow down to it, he will throw them into the furnace. Psalm 2 is so good, and Psalm 2 is echoing a lot of these things that we're reading in Daniel 1 through 3. Psalm 2 talks about an everlasting kingdom, the king of kings. And one thing that it says in Psalm 2 is this. As for me, I have set up my king in Zion, on my holy hill. God is talking about his kingdom. And his king was set up in Zion, in Jerusalem. His king was set up not by forcing people to bow down, but instead by sending his son, the king of the universe, to be lifted up on a cross. Instead of us taking the wrath that we deserve, he went to the furnace for us. Rather than us taking the punishment of sin, he took it on himself. You see, God's kingdom is a servant king that washed our feet, that gave his life, that died for us. Not by forcing us, but instead showing us something so beautiful and so attractive that we have nothing to do but to bow down to his great love for us. That one day, this picture that Nebuchadnezzar says will be even a greater picture where the nations will gather and the music will play and the voices will be one and they will say, here is the King of Kings, the God of Gods, who is worthy to be bowed to. He is worthy of his name to be magnified because he died for us. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings who pursues us, who loves us, who gives us true freedom. That we are not enslaved to the idols of this world, but instead we are in relationship with Him in a dynamic relationship. And then in that, we find out who we really were made to be. And then we are free and not enslaved to these things that we erect and try to give us meaning and purpose. That our true meaning and purpose is found when we're in a relationship with the God that created us and made us. 
and we can be in relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead.